years. And we are a, a generation of people who have more knowledge than any previous generation. It's available to us. Uh, my wife is the Google queen. Someone says, uh, what's this for? She says, Google it. Right? If you don't understand that, ask some of the younger people later. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we, we've got a lot of information, but the problem with knowledge is knowledge makes people proud, but love's built, love builds them up. You can have the next text up, please. Another translation, New Living Translation. While knowledge may make us feel important, it's, it's love that really builds up the church. Amen? I believe that. Uh, just a little testimony. When I got saved, I got saved when I was 18, so that's 51 years ago. And uh, I had a problem when I read in the Bible, love one another. Because everything I learned about love, I learned from Elvis Presley. Serious. Now, my, my phone's on, uh, it's switched off. I don't even have my phone on silent mode when I'm in church because I don't like the vibration. I think maybe somebody died. Uh, so I, I switch off. But if it was switched on and it rang, you'd hear Elvis Presley singing Jailhouse Rock. That's my call tone. Because I think all, all music died with the king. See? So the only thing I knew about love was love me tender, love me true. And then I got saved, and it says, love one another. I was confused. And then a guy came to our church, and he, he said, in the Bible, love is not an emotion. Love is a choice to action. When you love someone, you just do the very best you can for them. And it's as simple as that. And so that's what uh, we are reading here. That's what Paul is telling us, is love is more important than knowledge, although we don't always uh, realize that it is. Okay. So... Next, please. This is a, a friend of mine, John Shelburne. He's in heaven right now. A great, great man. Did you meet him? Oh, everything you hear about John is true. He was a, a real man of God. And John said something in a meeting. I was there when he said it. We know so much and we do so little. I wish we knew a little less and did a lot more. See, because we Christians, we're, we're sermon tasters. You know, the pastor preaches or didn't preach, and, and we assess it. But we don't go out and do it. And that's my passion tonight is that we get out there and do it, not just have the information. Right. So, if we can have the next one, please. We're going to look at three topics tonight, very briefly. Um, Karen sent me a, an email, said I can teach for 80 minutes. Is that, is that real? Did you give her authority to say that? I told Julia, she said, no way. No way. All right? We're going to look at discipleship in the pre-information age, and I'm going to tell you why. Then we're going to look at conditions for discipleship in the information age, and then we're going to look at propagating discipleship in the information age. Because I think the information age... It's got negative aspects, but it's also got some very positive aspects. And I think that if we use the information correctly, we can reach this generation for Jesus before he returns. I really believe that with all my heart. And so we've got to have a, uh, have a look at those three things. So if you can go to the next one, please. Discipleship in the pre-information age. Um, 
Increased information does not guarantee increased obedience. A lot of Christians know stuff, but they don't live the life of obedience. Um, so next one, please. Abraham had no Bible. Yet, God spoke to him seven times, and he responded seven times. Amen? I've got dozens of Bibles. Um, on this thing here, I think, on my... Uh, tablet here. I think I must have about 16 translations. On my phone, I've got about 20 translations. On my laptop, I've got about 80 translations, English, Spanish, Malay, French, German, all kinds of stuff. You, you've got all of that stuff. Abraham had no Bible. Okay, can we have the next one, please? There are several sources of information, and I'll, we'll just go down. Next one. The first source of information is speech. Yeah? We talk to one another. I still believe in preaching. I sp still believe in one-on-one -on -one communication. Praise God. My wife still speaks to me. I call Julia Deputy Holy Ghost because God speaks to me through her more than through any other human being. So she's DHG. Right? And then we've got print. Are you aware that we've only had print for a little bit over 600 years. Yeah? We also have books. Under print we have books. We have the next one. Newspapers. The next one. Magazines. Next. We have recordings. Next. CDs. DVDs. MP3s. MP4s, all kinds of stuff. We have television. We have the internet. Okay? How many access the internet here? Wow. I love it when the wrinklies use the internet. Amen? I was, I was with a friend, Bob Stevenson. I'm sure your pastor knows him. I brought Bob onto Facebook this week. Yeah. Yeah. I brought Bob Stevenson onto Facebook because I'm a great believer in using the technology. I believe if the Apostle Paul was alive today, he'd have a blog, he'd have a website, and he'd be on Facebook. Yeah? I've, he, he used what was available. And so it's all there. Uh, next screen, please. Abraham had access to only one of these, speech. When Abraham was alive, there was no print. There was no recordings, there was no TV, there was no internet. He only had speech as a means of communication. And so, uh, let's bear that in mind, that we today have got far more advantages than Abraham had in many different ways. But like my friend John Shelburne, I wish we knew a little bit less, but did a lot more. And so I want to look at Abraham very quickly. If we can go to the next screen. God spoke to Abraham seven times, and here we get some very good principles of discipleship. I believe Abraham was a disciple. The word isn't used in the Old Testament, but discipleship involves response to the voice of God. Uh, let's just read Genesis chapter 12. We're going to have a, uh, spend a bit of time in Genesis in the days before the information age. 
And in Genesis 12 and verse 1, it says these words. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out from your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Amen. Hallelujah. No Bible. God speaks. Next one, please. So discipleship involves response to the voice of God. Let me just amplify that first one a little bit. Excuse me, I'm, I'm scooting past a lot of stuff. It was concerning his location. Get out from where you are. It was concerning his nationality. Abandon your nationality. Go somewhere else. It was concerning his family. Leave your father's house. To a place that I will show you. Hallelujah. Amen. Abraham did not have a GPS. When we're coming down here today, I just programmed the church. I did get the map. That I programmed the church into the GPS and, you know, we got here. He didn't have any of that. In fact, it says, tells us very clearly in Hebrews, he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, that's trust, isn't it? That's trust. See, what we want is, God, tell me what's going to happen and then I'll respond. And I'm just going to share testimony here and it's testimony against Colin Hurt. I've just mentioned Bob Stevenson, 1973. I was already pastoring in the UK, and I was in a meeting in 1973, uh, not in our church, but in a church nearby, and Bob Stevenson was back from Malaysia. He was a missionary in Malaysia, and he was back in the UK, and I'd been praying for Chinese people for many, many years, and Bob Stevenson made a statement. He said, a lot of people don't realize that almost 40% of the population of, China, uh, of Malaysia is Chinese, and God spoke to me very clearly and said, right. You pray for the Chinese all these years, now you go and you preach to them. Got in the car to drive home, and Julia turned to me, and she said, Colin, I believe in that meeting, God spoke to me to go to Malaysia. We had never discussed it before. And I said to her, don't be stupid. We've got four young children. We can't go to Malaysia with four young children. And a sticking point for me was the kids' education, because I, I had chatted to Bob, and he said, well, you know, it's very difficult to get your kids educated in Malaysia. You can't put them in the state schools, and the private schools are so expensive. And so I said to Julia, God just wants us to pray. And for the next two years, I was fighting against Julia and Almighty God. And that's a formidable duo. Yeah? And one Wednesday night, Julia was going over to the Bible college, which was not too far from our home, and she said to me, in beautiful, submissive, wifely terms, you'd better get this sorted out with God before I get home. You know, my wife actually phoned the Assemblies of God Mission Board and said, will you take a wife without the husband? And they said, no, that's not our policy. You'll have to pray for him. So, uh, you know, I, I'm talking about Abraham. God says, go. He went. I was reluctant to go. And it was a family issue. And so that night I got on my knees and I had no intention of obeying Julia or God. And then God spoke to me 
and said, stretch out your hand. And I said, where, Lord? And he said, over the sea. That's what he said to Moses. And I said, where, Lord? And he said, Malaysia. And I just knew it. So I surrendered, but I'm a coward. So I didn't, when Julia came home, I never said a word, just went to bed in silence. But I keep a journal, you see, and I'd written in my journal what God had said. So the next day I'm in my office because I was working uh, in secular work as well as uh, work, pastoring the church. And I was in my office and God said, you coward, tell her. So I phoned home and I said, Julia, just go and get my journal and read last night's entry. And she came back to the phone with those words all husbands love to hear. I told you so. Right? Okay, so I'm, I'm saying that Abraham had no Bible. You know, I, I'm an expert in the Bible. Or I thought I was. But you're not an expert if you just know it and you don't do it. So he went when God called him. The next point, discipleship involves receiving inheritance from God. If you go down in the same chapter... Then the Lord, uh, verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, God calls him to go. He goes, not knowing where he's going, until he gets there and God says, This is it. And, and he says, And I'm going to give this land to you. See, and when we respond in obedience and trust, God gives us the land. I want to tell you, uh, we have seen tremendous. When we went to Malaysia, even though I delayed for two years, 73 to 75, and then it took us from 75 to 78 to get our visa, but when we arrived, it was exactly the right time. See, because God knows. He knew I was going to put it off for two years. He knew immigration was going to fool around with us for, two, uh, for three years. So when we arrived, it was just the right time. It was the beginning of the charismatic renewal in the Anglican churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches. Everyone's getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders are taking place. Healings were ten a penny. I'm serious. There was one medical doctor there, Dr. Peter Tong. Uh, we just arrived. His pastor said to me, uh, Colin, let me introduce you to a man who in the past two years has won 200 souls for Jesus in our church. I thought, this is my, this is my guy. I want to meet him. So I met him. And uh, he was a medical doctor. He said, well, do you want to come and see how we operate? So on the Monday morning, I went down to his clinic in Kuala Lumpur. And first of all, they had worship and prayer with all his staff. that set the tone for the day. Then I preached to the staff. Then the patients start coming in. And he asked permission of this old lady. This old lady, Chinese lady came in. Didn't speak a word of English, so he had to translate for me. And he diagnosed her sickness. And then he said these words to her. He said, you know... I can prescribe medication for you right now, and you will recover. Your, your sickness is treatable. He said, but I could pray for you right now in the name of Jesus, and you'll be healed, and you won't have to pay for any medication. Now, she's Chinese. She's not stupid. So, uh, can I pray for you? She said, yes. Then he paused, and he said, but let me tell you something else. You can be healed right now. But if you don't receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, one day you're going to go to hell. And that would be a bit of a waste, wouldn't it, to have health and then go to hell in the end? Would you receive Jesus as Savior? Well, to cut a long story short, she walked out of that clinic, saved, healed, and baptized in the Holy Ghost. And I'm sitting there with my mouth wide open thinking, uh, now I know how he's won 200 souls for Jesus. Praise God. And so God was giving us the land, and he's still doing it. Amen? That's why Julie and I are still involved in Malaysia, because we believe God is giving the land. We're taking it. 
Amen. Are you going to take Western Australia for Jesus? Because I'm going to talk about what discipling nations means in a moment, because I believe it's... Okay? So, it involves receiving an inheritance from God. Next one, please. Discipleship involves receiving vision from God. Uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 14. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. Hallelujah. Amen. He got a vision. Lift up your eyes. And I really believe this, friends. Um, so many Christians have got their eyes on the wrong things. They don't see what God is wanting to give them. And I, I say, I'm going to be 70 this year, but I've got my eyes open for what God is wanting to give us. And I was just sharing uh, with Pastor Mike and with some of the folk. Um, we, we're traveling 15 nations a year, but we always said, we keep on doing what we're doing until God tells us something different. Well, we think he's telling us something different because uh, we, our home now is in South Wales, not New South Wales, but the original South Wales. And our house is there, and it's about just over half an hour drive from the city of Swansea. And we own a house there. For three years, we've gone home intending to sell that house and move back to England where our kids and grandkids are. But for th every time we've tried to sell it, if we go home, something's gone wrong with the house, like the chimney stack fell down and all kinds of stuff. And we've not been able to put it on the market. Now, my wife hears from God a lot. I, I joke about it, but she does. And she said to me, Colin, maybe the Lord wants us to stay in Wales for some reason. You know, this is remarkable. Then, just last year, I was introduced, well, reintroduced to a guy in Singapore. His name is Pastor Yang. He's pastor of a large church called Cornerstone Church in Singapore. And, it, uh, and he said to me, Colin, have you ever read the book Reese Howell's Intercessor? I said, wow, big impact on my life when I was a young Christian. He said, well, I read it. And God spoke to me and said, the mantle of Reese Howells will fall upon you. Well, let me tell you about Reese Howells. He came out of the Welsh revival, 1904. He went all over Africa and brought a revival to every nation he went. Then he went back to Wales and he formed the Bible College of Wales in Swansea. Right? And the emphasis was on intercession, training, and world missions. And actually, Reese Howells won the Second World War if you read about it, because he saw Adolf Hitler as being the main obstacle to world evangelization. If this guy takes over the world, he'll stop world evangelization. So we've got to pray him out, and he prayed him out. Amen? And, and remarkable things. And so Pastor Young said, when I read the book, God spoke to me and said, the mantle of Reese Howells will fall upon you. He said, then Reinhard Bonnke, who was trained in the Reese Howells Bible College in Swansea, came to Singapore and prophesied the same thing over Pastor Yang. The mantle of Reese Howells will fall upon you. And he said, I still didn't know what it meant. And then two years ago, the Bible College of Wales came on the market for sale. They closed it down. It was dilapidated, falling to pieces. And it came on the market, and he suddenly realized. So to cut a long story short... Cornerstone Church in Singapore have now purchased the Bible College of Wales, and it's being refurbished right now, and in 2014 it will be reopened for intercession, training, and world missions. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen? Just a little sidebar to that. 
uh, we went to see the young guy who was also my student in Bible school uh, uh, many years ago, and he's, he's overseeing the refurbishment. And he said, oh, Pastor Yang's got a vision to build a thousand-seater auditorium on the site of the Bible college and open a church. On the Sunday, I went to another church that we had linked with called Swansea Valley Bible Church. And uh, I said to the young pastor, I said, oh, we've just been out to the Bible College of Wales, and Pastor Yang uh, wants to open a thousand-seater auditorium. He said, stop right there. Don't say one more word. And he called his leaders over. He said, tell Colin the prophetic word we had last week when we were fasting and praying. Oh, well, it was, thus saith the Lord, there will be a thousand-seater church raised up in Swansea. Amen. Wow. Isn't that exciting? So I've got my eyes open. I'm saying, Lord, show us. Show us what we're going to inherit. And so we've got to get vision from God. Next one, please. Discipleship involves believing the promises of God. 15 and verse 1. Genesis 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abraham said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And you know what it says in Hebrews. He, being as good as dead, modern expression, one foot in the grave. Hallelujah. Amen. And he believed the promise of God. Friends, it's as simple as that. Discipleship in, involves believing God. Believing that when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Praise God. And I'm sure all of you here tonight, you've had words from the Lord, and sometimes it seems like it's never going to happen, because Abraham went through a process after that of belief and unbelief and belief and unbelief, but he came in the end to see the promise of God fulfilled. And we've got to keep on believing. I am absolutely certain, I don't know very much about your church, but I'm absolutely certain God has spoken prophetic words about this church. And they're going to come to pass. Amen? The church where I got saved 51 years ago, at that time we had a youth revival going on. I was one of many teenagers who came to the Lord. My pastor was a grave evangelist, still my best buddy besides Julian in the world. And then... Uh, I pastored it for a while. We had a great uh, move of God. And then after we left to go into missions and other people took over, it went right down. And it came to one day where they gathered together, the membership, and they had a vote as to whether to close down the church or not. It was so bad. And they only by one vote decided to keep it open. Now that church is having an impact upon the whole town. Praise God. Outreach into many different areas. They've just gone through a little bit of problem last year, but they're coming through it, and, and they're moving on in God. Hallelujah. And I remember the prophetic words when I was a young teenager in that church, and they are now being fulfilled 51 years later. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, listen to this. I don't know. I'm saying half of this. I'm digressing a lot. probably won't get through the notes. Is that okay? As long as... Um, the guy I've just mentioned who uh, said, Colin, stop right there, the prophetic word of a thousand people. His father brought me a, a, an audio tape a few 
a couple of years back. And it was way, it was about 30 years ago, someone prophesied in this place in South Wales and said, Thus saith the Lord, get ready, the Poles are coming, and they will inhabit this mountain. At that time, there were no Polish people in Wales. Now, the whole of that town is majority Polish. Praise God. And we had a short-term Bible school, and one of our students was from Poland, and uh, we took her off there to evangelize in that town. And now the, that pastor who had that tape is in Poland pioneering, pioneering a church right now, and we know he's going to be sending Polish missionaries over to Wales to win the Poles for Wales. When God speaks, yeah? Get ready, the Poles are coming. And everybody's going, yeah, all right. The Poles are coming. They probably thought they were going to stick some Poles up, didn't they? you know? Bring, bring Australian footy over or something like that. Now, there's a sport I've never understood. Please forgive me. I'm English. All right? So, believing the promise of God. Next one, please. Discipleship involves in seeing beyond the obstacles. 15 down to verse 18. Just listen to this. On that same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenazites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Whoa. What does that mean? God then tells Abraham, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt for 400 years. And then they are going to return, and these 11 nations have got to be defeated before you can inherit the land. See, it's great when God says, I'm going to give you this land. Yes? Then he says, but you're not going to see it. You're going to have to wait 400 years. And when your descendants come back, there are 11 nations they've got to kick out. Well, actually, when they came back, there were about 15 in total because they, they subdivided. Uh, see, discipleship in, involves in seeing beyond the obstacles. Whenever God speaks, you will always get tested upon that word. Amen? You believe that? You'll always get tested upon that word. Julia was just sharing at the meal tonight. When we went to Malaysia, we went on a one-way ticket with four kids and 200 English pounds in a suitcase each. And no promised support at all. We slept on a concrete floor for six months. And it came to a day when I was supposed to go 163 miles, I got it wrong earlier, 163 miles to preach in a church in Kuala Lumpur because we were on the east coast in a town called Kwantan. And I was supposed to go there and I didn't have the bus fare. And we had no food to feed our kids. And so, again, to cut all the details out, I pawned my wife's engagement ring and wedding ring to buy food for the kids and to buy a bus ticket. I'd never been in a pawn shop in my life. And I got on my knees and I said, God, I don't understand this. I'm sure you sent us to Malaysia. I'm sure you told us to come. But we're constantly fighting poverty. We're constantly fighting against all these difficulties. And I'm spending most of my time praying about food instead of praying about souls. You know, and, and I, I was really concerned. Went off to Kuala Lumpur and uh, a few weeks before, Julia had ridden in a car, a Peugeot 404, and we didn't own one because we couldn't afford one. But she said, 
We've got to pray. She got the kids together. We've got to pray. We need a car. And if God gives us a car, we want a Peugeot 404 because the roads are a wreck and this was a sturdy car. I went to Kuala Lumpur. I preached in the largest Assembly of God church in, in KL. And after the meeting, they took me out for a meal. And someone said, have you told Colin? I said, told me what? We bought you a car. It's a Peugeot 404. Hallelujah. But obstacle, problem. I don't have any money left to put gas in the car. The pastor's wife, the pastor was away overseas. She said, uh, oh, my husband said, don't leave Julia and the kids in Kwantan. Drive over and bring them back. I thought, that's wonderful. I've got a car, no gas. The next morning I got up and I said to her, any mail for me? Because our mail was still being sent to the church. No, nothing's come. That was terrible. I went off with the guys to register the car in my name. I came back and she said, oh, there's been a telegram from a bank. Please go to this bank at your earliest convenience. So I went to the bank and a church in England who never sent us money ever again sent us some money at that bank. And it was enough money to put petrol in the church van. She said, oh, don't take the, don't take the car, take the church van. So I went back to the pastor. I said, uh, pastor's wife, I said, now I can tell you because we never, never mentioned needs. I said, now I can tell you I didn't have any money to put gas in the van. She, oh, I forgot to tell you, my husband said to fill it up for you before you go. So now I've got a car, money, and a van, brought my wife over, and after that, the miracles just started coming in. But you see, you get the test first. You get the test. Abraham, I'm going to give you the land. Hallelujah, Lord. 400 years, and they're going to have to fight for it. See, we want this easy Christianity where we don't have to fight. Friends, we've got to fight. Anything worth having is worth fighting for. And so I'm still fighting the good fight of faith. Um, we didn't have that played at our wedding either, you know, fight the good fight. Although I sometimes think we should have. Right. So discipleship involves seeing beyond the obstacles. Next one, please. Discipleship involves keeping the conditions of the covenant. And that's 17 and verse 1. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and you will multiply, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God talked to him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations come of you, and kings will come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, etc. Verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. Just one condition. Surgery. Well, the, the sign of the covenant. Now, thank God in the New Testament, it's not physical circumcision, but circumcision is of the heart. 
And sometimes that is just as painful as physical circumcision, even more painful. It's part of the covenant, friends. It involves keeping the conditions of the covenant. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay, very quickly, next one. Discipleship involves passing the tests of God, and that's 22. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow, what a test. What a test. Now let me just share testimony on that. When I was struggling with this whole thing of going to Malaysia, one of the major problems I had was the education of our kids. And so one night I was praying. It was after I'd said, yes, Lord, I'll go. But I was making a condition. Lord, I will go if you promise that my kids will get an education. And I read this passage and God spoke to me and said, Abraham was not sacrificing Isaac's education. He was sacrificing Isaac. And I came to the place where I said that night, I said, okay, God, I'll go to Malaysia even if my kids don't get an education. You know, the next verse I read was in Isaiah. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Hallelujah. And in the secular world, all our kids are successful because God has kept his promise. Amen? And it's, it's passing that test. Right, very quickly, God's test demands meticulous response. Abraham could have said, oh, well, I've got another boy, Ishmael. Let me find him. I'll sacrifice him. He said, no, Isaac, the one that you love. Next, please. God's test demands unquestioning response. Abraham didn't argue about it. Take now your son. And he didn't say, Lord, I don't like the idea. He just responded. What a great man. No Bible. Nothing to fall back on in, wow, I've got examples in the Word. Uh, number three, please. God's test demands immediate response. Verse three, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Yeah? He didn't say, okay, God, give me a few more days so I can have fun with my boy, and then I'll obey. No. If it's got to be done, it's got to be done. And friends, I found something in my spiritual life. The more you put off a difficult decision, the harder it gets. Yes? See, by nature, I am a prevaricator. I like to put things off. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing next week. Yes. I've got a wife. If a thing is worth doing, it's worth doing now. And so she's constantly saying, you better do this. You better get it done. So re immediate response. Number four, please. God's intention depends upon our response. Go down to verse 15 of the chapter. Just listen to what God says. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of the heaven. That's when he has revealed the, the goat caught. And verse 16. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendant shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Just move on, please. 
let me just amplify that. All of the things that God says from verse 15 on, he's already promised Abraham. But now Abraham has obeyed, they can become a reality. And let me just explain something. One of the bedrocks of my theology is this, that God wants us to be more like himself day by day. So God doesn't play games with us, but sometimes he withholds an answer to our prayers or withholds a promise because he's wanting to see change of character in us. If God gave us everything instantaneously, we would never change. We would never develop in our Christian character. So God sometimes withholds things, not because he's playing games, but he wants us to change. And when Abraham does what God says, God says, now I'm going to give it to you. Okay. Now I want to move on to the next section. And that is discipleship, the conditions for discipleship. In the information age. All right, Abraham had no Bible. He just heard the voice of God. Can I say this? I still believe that hearing the voice of God is very, very important to us. Amen? We get bombarded by so much information that sometimes we don't hear the voice of God. And so, what I find, have you ever been in in a restaurant and there's four people sitting at the table and they're all texting at the same time. Yeah? Or in, in a family gathering. And no one's conversing anymore. They're all texting or accessing the internet or Googling stuff. When our kids were young, we had a rule. At mealtime, TV goes off. Because this is a time of family. I believe it should be the same in our relationship with God. Amen. We got all the information, but it's a great thing to get rid of the technology and get into the presence of God and hear the voice of God. And so I think we've got to cultivate that because otherwise all we're doing is getting more and more information. Now, the conditions. First of all is the condition of cost. That's in Luke 9, 57 to 62. 57 and 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. There's a cost for discipleship. Say amen. Even if you don't agree with me, say amen. Yes? We're we're in a generation that wants everything without cost. You know, the welfare state takes care of us from the day we're born till the day we die. And I know you've got it in us as well as we've got it in the UK. And I think it can, be, it can be a real curse that we get that mentality. The world owes us. You know, I was in, in the States last year. I shocked them all. I said, you know, in America, you're always talking about human rights, human rights, human rights. I said, according to my Bible, there's only one human right, and that's the right to go to hell, and everything else is grace. And they were like, whoa. Yeah? Yeah, you can, you can use it. I'll allow you to use that. Right? And, and so there is no cost. And I believe that costless Christianity is counterfeit Christianity. Now, God doesn't command every one of us to leave everything, as Julia and I did in 1978, and go to Malaysia uh, with no uh, financial support. He doesn't 
ask us all to do it, but he asks us all to be willing to do it if necessary. And so this guy, Lord, I will follow you. And he says, yeah, all right, a bit of self-confidence there. Now, that's the cost of following Christ. I just want to talk at this stage about information because um, we get a lot of information. And I say information does not make us more obedient. And in fact, sometimes it can impede obedience because we think knowing is a substitute for doing. And it puffs up. We've already seen that. So several things. Number one, we should not become too dependent on information. We should also seek to avoid false information. And I'm going to give you three V's right now. They're not going to come up on the screen. Uh, oh, maybe they, they will. I can't remember what I put on the PowerPoint. Can you, can you just go down one and see? Yeah. Oh, yeah, they are there. Number one, the information should be valid. Let's face it, even in the books you read, the newspapers you read, the information is not always valid. Have you, have you discovered that politicians lie to you? Yeah? <laughs> Never. I've got to be careful how I say this because um, I was in a church in South Wales, and South Wales is very strongly labor, you know, socialist. And I was in this church, and I said, um, and we've got a lot of liars as our leaders. I, I, Tony Blair was a liar, and David Cameron was a liar, and this voice shouted out, no, they're not. You know how to know when a politician is lying, don't you? His mouth is moving, yeah. And, and so, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's an old one, yes. Yeah. Well, you ask them, what would you have said yesterday if I'd asked you, are all politicians liars? Then you will get the truth. Think about it. If they always lie, if you said, what would you have said yesterday? If I said all politicians are liars, they would have told a lie yesterday, so they've got to lie today about what they would have said yesterday, so they're now going to tell you the truth. All right, that's, that's an old chestnut. No. So it should be valid. Now, how do we know it's valid? Well, second thing, it should be verifiable. Let me just read Second Timothy 1, verses 13 to 14. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So Paul talks there about a pattern of sound teaching. I believe Paul had a basic statement of what was true. In other words, and he gave it to Timothy and he gave it to the churches so that they could validate everything that was said and now, let's face it, I'm talking about the information age. In the days when Paul was around, false teaching had to come into town with a false teacher. Because there was no, were no CDs, there was no internet. They had to actually physically come into town with their false teaching and spread it. So it was more readily identifiable. Nowadays, pastors have a problem because a lot of their folks are on the internet getting all kind of garbage in their bedroom. And, uh, you know, the pastor doesn't know what they're getting until suddenly it erupts in the church and you hear all kinds of, well, where did that come from? And so we have a bigger problem. 
And I think that what we've got to do in the local church is make sure that our people have a sound bedrock of truth against which they can validate the information coming in. Uh, let me give you one, for instance. Uh, uh, my, oh, yeah, the commercial for my book. It's called Pseudo Grace. Basically, it's trying to draw a bit of balance about some of the extreme teaching on grace that's going around the world right now. And one of the bedrocks of that teaching is this. All your past, present, and future sins are already forgiven. Therefore, there is no need for repentance or confession. That's a very strong teaching. So, yeah, but it's there. It's there in the book uh, of a guy called Joseph Prince in Singapore. It's clearly stated. He states it. I've seen him say it on TV. It's on his CDs. And so, you know, Christians watch those TV programs off the Internet, and they hear that, and I think, past, present, and future sins are forgiven. Well, let's leave out future sins for the moment, but let's just think about present sins. So I'm strangling Julia, and at the same time, because my present sins are forgiven. That's what he teaches. Can you see the nonsense of that? And future sins, whereas the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, you need to repent. Jesus speaks to the church and said, you need to repent. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Amen? And yet some of the teachers, not just one guy in Singapore, it's many are picking this up now around the world. Uh, all your future sins are forgiven, so there's no need for repentance or confession anymore. It's all dealt with by the precious blood of Jesus. Yeah? Now, I think that can be verified against the Bible. Jesus, for instance, Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus goes on to say, it's the only part of the Lord's Prayer that he amplifies. And he says, because if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. So it's quite clear Jesus didn't believe that your future sins are all forgiven. He makes it conditional. And I'm just using it as an illustration of this whole principle. A thing's got to be valid, but for us to know whether it's valid, it's got to be verifiable. And thank God... This is where the information age can help us. For instance, one of the teachings is that the word repent simply means a change of mind. And all you have to do is change your mind about what Jesus has done for you. So, you know, you could have just murdered your wife and buried her in the backyard and you say, but I'm saved by grace. Now, you can just click on the internet and, and put the word repentance and go to some good website and it'll tell you repentance means a, more, a lot more than just a change of mind. It's a change of heart, will, mind, emotions, and direction. It's a total change. If any man is in crisis, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, a friend of mine uh, said something and one of his church members put it on Facebook. If grace does not transform your life, what makes you think it's grace? I like that, yeah? If grace does not transform your life, what makes you think it's grace? Because grace transforms. And so uh, it's got to be, first of all, valid, then verifiable, and then the third V is it, it's got to be valuable. Can we have the next one? It should be valuable. That is, some information may be true, but it's not going to do me a lot of good. 
Now, please, don't get carried too far. I do believe in relaxation, so I, you know, I read stuff that's just, I read jokes on the internet. I don't think he does. He's, his jokes are so old, they've, <laughs> they're pre-internet, they're, they're from the pre-information age. Yes, right, okay. I, he I heard someone at the mealtime today, you know. Um, but is it valuable? Is it going to do me any good? Yeah, so it's okay to relax. Like one of the things I do, uh, I go on, onto the website to find out what the cricket scores are in England because I'm a cricket fanatic. But it's not going to affect my spiritual life whether or not Nottingham should win. That's my home county. Uh, but doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. So it makes me feel good, but it's not going to make me any more spiritual. But I'm talking in the spiritual realm. Is it valid? Is it verifiable? And is it valuable? Is it going to help you in your Christian walk? Is it going to make you a better disciple of Jesus? So in this whole area of discipleship, I think that's what we've got to be looking for. Can, can we just uh, move on? So there is the cost. And the next thing is the reputational cost. Luke 9, 59 to 60. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And actually, he's a disciple because in Matthew 8, 21, it says another disciple said to him. So the guy's already a disciple, but he says, Lord, I will follow you, but let me go and bury my dad. Now, this is, again, where the information age can help you because if you go onto the Internet and get some good Bible commentaries, they'll point out that basically what he's saying is his dad's not yet dead. So he's not saying you should not go to your father's funeral. But what he's saying is, Lord, let me go and stay home until my father's dead, then I'll come and follow you. Now, this is where reputational cost comes in, because if you leave your parents behind, there are going to be people who will criticize you for that. There are going to be people who say, what kind of son is that? See, I'm so glad, you know, what happened 51 years ago, I wish I had time to tell you all of this, but I will be going into the 80 minutes. Um, 51 years ago, well, just over a period of about two years, my whole family came to Jesus. I'm the youngest of five kids. Um... And my sister got saved in America, came home to England, witnessed to us. I was number two. Two weeks after me, my younger sister got saved. Two weeks after that, my eldest sister and her husband got saved. The day after that, my dad got saved at the age of 54, drunk beer every night of his life. Coal miner, good excuse, you've got to wash the coal dust down. The day after that, my mum got saved. My brother struggled for about a year and a half, but we got him in the end. The whole family came to Jesus in, that, in a two-year period tremendous move of God. We saw a visitation from God in our family. Uh, but, you know, I knew immediately, the night that I got saved, I knew I was going to be a missionary. I didn't know where, but I went home from the church and I just knew I was going to be a missionary. I thought it was probably going to be Spain or Latin America because I spoke Spanish, but I was also doing German and French in school. So, uh, you know, it could have been any of those places. I never even thought about Malaysia at that time. But about a, a year later, I was in a missionary meeting, and the guy preached a very powerful missionary sermon and then appealed for all those who wanted to give their lives for missionary service, specific, just come forward. And I was one of those who went forward. And then the guy did a very wise thing. He said, okay, you see these 
younger people across the front here, now some of their parents are in the congregation. They said, I've seen so many parents hinder their kids from doing the will of God. So if your child is here, you stand up and release them to Jesus. And I looked over my shoulder, and my mother was there, and the baby of the family. And she's tears streaming down her face saying, take my boy. Take my boy. Now, it's easy to say that, but when we went to Malaysia several years later, taking her four grandkids away, my, my mother refused to come out of the house to say goodbye. She was so heartbroken. And then when we went back into missions, our, our granddaughter, Amy, she'd almost lived at our house. And so we went back to Malaysia, and we got a letter from our daughter. And she said, she, I said to Amy, do you want me to write to your nana and uh, say something? She said, yeah tell my nana to come home again. And she cried for about three days. There's a cost. And when people say, why would that, what kind of a family man is he? Leave his father and his mother. Friends, the kingdom of God and the will of God is more important than family. Yes, because I'll tell you something, when you make that priority, your family never suffers as a result. But you've got to make the choice. So there's a reputational cost. And I say that's where the uh, information age can help us because the, uh, the Internet will tell us that. And then there's another one. There's the relational cost. Luke 9, 61, 62. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Okay, just very quickly, they're the relational thing. Let me go and say goodbye to my family. The good commentators tell you, if you make that mistake, you'll probably stay home. You'll never do it. Let's go and have a party, a farewell, and you'll never do it. But I've just read there from the NIV. Let me read it again. Verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, this is where the information age helps us because the NIV is totally wrong. The words service in are not there in the Greek language. Wow. Let me just read. I think, I think they'll come up on the screen. If we try it. Yeah. Can you put the next one up? This translation by the NIE demonstrates the fact that not all information is accurate information. It's a mistranslation in one of my favorite versions is the NIV, but it's a mistranslation. Can you put the next one up, please? The Bible in basic English. But Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is good enough for the kingdom of God. Not servicing. Not good enough for the kingdom itself. Uh, next one. The contemporary English version. Jesus answered, anyone who starts plowing and keeps looking back isn't worth a thing to God's kingdom. Right, next one. New King James. Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Next one. New Living Translation. Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Are you getting the message? The NIV has popped a couple of words in there. I don't know why the translator would want to say service in the kingdom of God. Makes it a little bit nicer. All right. You're not disqualified from the kingdom, but you're disqualified from service in. No. It's a bit softer, but it's not true. And that's where 
The information age can help us because I, I guarantee that most of you got more than one translation of the Bible. And it's good. I love to check out translation against translation. Now, I can read Greek, so I can go and do it for myself. But most people can't. And you don't have to be able to read Greek because it's there for you in good translations. So make comparison because the translation is not always right. And I say, I love the NIV. It's one of my favorites. But in this case, it's got it wrong. And what it's doing is watering down the demands for discipleship. No one, having put his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Not worth anything for the kingdom. And I've seen so many people looking back. Uh, since we started our missionary service in 78, I believe that Julie and I have not looked back. I was did a bit of looking back before that, but no, I, just, I just want to look ahead. I know this, by the way, because I come from an agricultural uh, com uh, community, not where they plow with a horse, but where they plow with a tractor. And this farmer was teaching me how to plow with a tractor, and I made the mistake of uh, setting off before I knew how to stop the thing. So I turned and I said, how do you stop it? And the next thing I know, I've plowed a curvy furrow across and he's not very happy. Okay, so it's not fit for the kingdom of God. Okay, let's just move on quickly. The condition of the cross. Matthew 16, 24, 25. Matthew 16, 24, 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Amen? And by taking up the cross doesn't mean wearing one on your lapel. In those days, if someone was seen carrying a cross, they were going to their own execution. You know, my niece's husband came to me a couple of years back, and he said, I'd love to come to a, a Malaysia. I'm an evangelist. I said, welcome. You're welcome. He said, now the way I evangelize is I have this big wooden cross and I carry it down the street. I said, not in Malaysia, you don't. I said, you'd go a few paces, you'd either be dead or arrested. See, it's not carrying the cross in that sense. It's totally surrendering our lives even unto the death. That's what it means. Are you there? And whether it's in the pre-information age or in the information age, that's what's required of us. Amen? Now, just a little bit of a history lesson. 1611 was the time when the, new King, uh, when the King James Bible was translated. So we celebrated the 400th anniversary in uh, 2011, right? And that was the first Bible small enough for people to have a personal copy. So for the first 1,600 years of the church history, no one had their own personal Bible. And even then, in 1611, most people couldn't read and write, so it wasn't much use to them anyway. Can you see what a privilege we have in this age? Because we can read stuff like this, and we can now con we can compare the translations and say, wow, what's this really saying? And we can get to the good commentators. And you don't have to have the book at home now. You can do it on the Internet. I don't carry any books around with me, hardly at all now. I just, you know, I know where to resource them. And we do so much traveling. The condition of choice is the next one. The condition of the choice. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, and his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
That's Luke 14. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it, in the English language? Anyone who comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, I've got to hate my father and mother. Well, no, if you compare, first of all, Matthew 10:37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me. So because the word hate originally in the Hebrew language, but it carried over into the uh, Greek New Testament well. It didn't mean, I hate you. It meant to love less. You read about it when Jacob has two wives. And it says, when God saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Now, Jacob hated her so much that he went to bed with her and got her pregnant. So he didn't hate her that much. It's just that he didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. And so it means to love less. It means to prioritize. And so that's the whole thing. It's making the choices in our lives. And I've already said it, friends. If you choose to serve Jesus first, put him first, your family will never suffer as a consequence of that. But you've got to make the choice. Okay, I'm going to close. Very quickly. The next one, the condition of continuance. On hearing it, uh, John 6, verse 60. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? John 6, 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's his disciples turned back. That's when Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And first of all, they said, well, that's tough. And then after a while, considering it, they said, that's it, we're finished, we're through. And they walked back. Friends, discipleship needs to be followed through. Definitely. Whether it's the pre-information age we saw Abraham, we now see the demands of Jesus. You've got to follow through on your discipleship. Amen? Okay, I will just briefly give you the, the third point, propagating discipleship in the information age. Because I believe we have a commission. We have the mandate to evangelize, which is Mark 16, verses 14 and 20. Let me talk about that briefly. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany them that believe. In my name they shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. They shall drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Amen. That's the commission to evangelize. Now that commission took place in the upper room on the first resurrection Sunday morning. That's the commission to evangelize. But it's a second one I want to look at and that's the Matthew 28 commission which is different. It didn't take place in the upper room in Jerusalem. It took place in a, on a mountain in Galilee sometime later where Jesus had agreed to meet his disciples. And in this one, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I think a lot of churches in the world are not doing too bad at the evangelizing side, but it's when it comes to the discipling that we have a problem. And I've got to be honest with you, I can't get away with what it says there quite clearly in the Greek language. We're not just to disciple individuals, we are to disciple nations. 
go and make disciples of nations, not just out of the nations. I think the Greek construction is quite clear. So what a tremendous mandate, the mandate to evangelize and the, the mandate to disciple. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, I'm not going to take us any further than this. This is the last screen. I just want to open up on something. See, what I believe should happen in every nation is that we as individuals are so discipled that we impart that discipling to the nation. And it should change the nation. We've got a, uh, you know, they've just had an election in Malaysia on Sunday, on May 5th. And one of my former Bible college students, a young lady called Anna Yo, young married woman with two, she just had a baby just a few weeks ago, has been campaigning, and she has been re-elected as a state assemblywoman. Christian in the state assembly. And she campaigns like crazy against corruption in government. Whoa. She was one of the major leaders in a thing called Bursi. Bursi in the Malay language means clean. And the government didn't like it. They sent the cops in with water cannon and tear gas and everything. But she is fearless. And she was in a banquet last year that Julie and I attended in a church. And she said these words. She said, I believe that the church is the conscience of this nation. Amen. And that's what I believe. I, I don't follow the theory that says we're going to win all the nations for Jesus before he returns. Okay? I am not a post-millennialist. I believe in the, in, in the millennium. I believe in the rapture. But I believe that we have abdicated our responsibility to disciple nations. See, you're the people. You say, oh, come on, we can't do it. We're so small. Let me tell you about England. And I'm going to close with this. And you'll be coughing in a minute because if I say I'm going to close more than twice, she coughs. Right? My country, England, if you read the history, was once ruled by Druid priests who offered human sacrifices to demons. Then what happened? The kingdom of God came. The gospel came. And at one time, not now, we've backslidden from it, but at one time, our legal system, our parliamentary system, our educational system, our judicial system, everything was based upon the Word of God. The nation was discipled. I don't mean to say every person in the nation was saved, but the principles were there. Same with the United States. When the Pilgrim Fathers went over, they went over with a view to having a Christian constitution, and that's what happened. Still on their bank notes, in God we trust. And now, again, they've backslidden from that because they've got a Muslim president in the White House. Uh, but, yeah, right. But God can reverse that again. God can reverse that again. And I believe it can happen in Britain, it can happen in Australia, it can happen in the U.S., and it can happen in Muslim countries where the church so permeates society with the discipleship principles that it can transform the whole nation. Let me just share one final testimony. Uh, when we come to Malaysia in January, she's groaning. I've got to tell them this. We stay in a house that belongs to a very 
wealthy guy. This guy, about seven years ago, was a very strong Buddhist. He built Buddhist temples all over Malaysia. He's one of the wealthiest property developers in the whole country. But he got saved. I won't go into all the details of how he went to Russia and saw Jesus and got saved. But his company was in real... His accountant said, declare bankruptcy. It was that bad. But he said, I can't do that. I'm now a Christian. And how many homes, Julie, you know? 13,000 homes are not finished. And so there are 13,000 families who are depending upon me to finish their houses so they have somewhere to live. And I now have a responsibility. So he started applying biblical principles to his finances in his company. And last year, he completed the last of the 13,000 homes. Hallelujah. By being a disciple and what is happening, he's going all over Malaysia holding seminars on how to apply the Bible to your finances. Is that tremendous? I believe that's what I'm talking about, discipling nations. Because they're not just Christians coming along. Because he's so well known, lots of people are coming along. Let's hear this guy. And he's saying, this is what the Bible says. This is how you do it. And he's, I sat there and I thought, wow, he's only been a Christian for a couple of years. Well, seven years now. And he's learned so much because he's in the information age and he's made it his point to find out what does the Bible say about finance. And he's doing it and he's discipling people and people are changing the way they do business. And I believe it can affect the whole nation. Now, wherever you are, you can affect the whole nation by being a disciple and others will receive those discipleship principles. So we're in the information age. Many dangers a lot of garbage there on the internet, but a lot of good stuff too. It's got to be valid, verifiable, and valuable. Let's just pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your presence. I thank you for those who've come out tonight, even through this bad weather, because they love you, they love your word. And I pray, Lord, we'll be true disciples. We think about Abraham, Father, who had no Bible. But you spoke to him seven times and seven times he responded. And I pray that we will have that rapid response to your voice. I pray that you'll continue to speak to us. Lord, you can now speak to us through the information. But help us to know how to validate that information. How to verify it so that it will become valuable in our lives. I pray, Lord, that through this body of people here, you will disciple this whole region around. Many will be transformed because you're doing this. We believe it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Will you do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, let it be, Lord. And uh, some wonderful principles there in terms of um, you know, how do you deal with all the information that gets flooded in and stuff. And it's great that we could have Julia here. Some of us would remember Julia's testimony, but uh, she's an amazing testimony too. She's a girl from Yorkshire Dales, former mafia family, um, total alcoholic. I think you're a registered alcoholic and got gloriously saved. And you did, uh, you 
you picture your husband one day as a fist and cause him to bleed because he was out of order and stuff. So, um, a woman with a lot of fire and a great partner and a great guy. So, uh, you know, it is a great privilege to have people of this sort of calibre here. And it's very difficult sometimes because, you know, they're not into boasting, but these people have been involved with the strategic breaking open of nations and some of the largest churches in the world can be traced back to the work that um, you know, Dr. Colin and Julia Hurt have done. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping for rubber on us that something of that anointing will come upon God's prophetic destiny for our church and that God will do great things. So thank you so much for making your way down that horrible freeway in this weather and spending time with us. And at 70 years of age, you've given me encouragement. I'm quite looking at the numbers tick over. I'm approaching 56 nits this month. And I'm beginning to think, you know, I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> hey, neither you. <laughs> We're all getting that bit older. But what a wonderful encouragement. And so while we have breath, we will yet praise the Lord and serve Him with gladness. So thank you. It's fantastic to see you here tonight. God bless you. And uh, do recommend uh, that if you've... Um, you know that it's a great little book to pick up. It is actually a real problem, particularly in Asia. Some people are picking up the uh, this whole idea of grace, and it's an abuse of grace. And it's great just to come back to what does the Bible teach. So God bless you, and uh, we will see you Sunday for another wonderful meeting. God bless you. Mother's Day. Bring your mum. We have a donut machine now in the church. And the books are for sale. Mother's Day, we've got bunks for sale. We're trying to raise these beds for Elisha's orphanage. We've only got 15 to go. Isn't that exciting? Very close. So that's fantastic. So God bless you.